I've been quite open about this around the office. I don't want this parks department to build any parks because I don't believe in government. I think that all government is a waste of taxpayer money. My dream is to have the park system privatized and run entirely for profit by corporations like Chuck E. Cheese. They have an impeccable business model. I would rather work for Chuck E. Cheese. While the disdain Parks and Recreation's Ron Swanson has for government is played for laughs, his view of government being inefficient and a lousy place to work is shared by many Americans. But what if government inefficiency and employee dissatisfaction are, in part, because the software tools available to government employees haven't kept up with the private sector? What if Ron Swanson experienced government tools the same way he experienced bacon and eggs? Just give me all the bacon and eggs you have. Wait, wait, I worry what you just heard was, give me a lot of bacon and eggs. What I said was, give me all the bacon and eggs you have. Do you understand? These are the kinds of questions marketing professionals may be asking themselves after hearing what Mary Drummond has to say. She's focused on being customer-centric in her marketing efforts, but her new market, local government, is often ignored. You'll be surprised to hear what happens when they're not. This week on Next in Q, Mary and I discuss what it means to be customer-centric in marketing the importance of voice of the customer data, the most cost-effective method of marketing today, astounding misconceptions about government workers, the unexpected cost of not investing in technology, and finally, Mary issues a challenge to marketers. Let's get to it. Welcome to Next in Q, the podcast for contact center and customer experience professionals. Next in Q is brought to you by Happy Two Vision. Eliminate blind spots and see right through every conversation with Happy Two Vision. Learn more at HAPPITU.com. Now, here's your host, Rob Dwyer. Hey, everyone. Thanks for joining another episode of Next in Q. Today, joining me, I have a real podcaster, in addition to a lot of other things, Mary Drummond. Mary, welcome to the show. How are you? Hey, Rob. It's great to be here. It is. You have been, you've been doing this podcasting thing for a hot minute. Uh, you have a host a show called Voices of CX. How long yeah. have you been doing that? Uh, well, I've been doing it for uh, 10 seasons. We do two seasons a year. So five years, I guess it's been a while. Wow. That, that has <laughs> been a while. You say it like it's not super fun, but I uh, probably have a really good time doing it. I do. I do. I, I, I enjoy it. I, I like being able to inject a little bit of my personality. I know that you do the same. So this is going to be a great conversation. Yeah, absolutely. I imagine that you do that as uh, in some ways probably began as a marketing effort. And that's actually part of what we're going to be talking about today. 
which is customer centric marketing. And those seem like some buzzwords maybe. So why don't you debuzz them and tell us what that means? Well, first of all, I think that buzzwords are called buzzwords for a reason. They <laughs> generate buzz, right? And yeah. The, the idea behind it is, okay, there's so much talk of customer centricity, and I've been in customer experience in that whole customer world for so long, but there are times that it overlaps with marketing, but there are also, perhaps more often than not, times where marketing and CX absolutely don't touch or even talk. So <laughs> when I was you know figuring out who I was as a professional, it's like, okay, well, I'm I'm not just customer experience and I'm not just marketing. So what would be a really great marriage of those two things? Well, perhaps bringing customer centricity and, and all of these concepts that I've learned and implemented so well throughout my career into marketing, that could probably define me a lot better than just marketing or just customer experience. So... That's, that's what I came up with. And I, I think that if it didn't have buzz, then I would have failed as a marketer. So I'm actually glad <laughs> that you are labeling this as, as buzzed her. <laughs> I am too. I am too. I wonder, you just talked about how often, right, marketing doesn't interact with, with customer experience. Is that because we've, for a long time, marketing has been siloed and by that i mean we bring in people who are professional marketers and really weren't part of the business in another way prior to that and so they don't necessarily understand the customer or the business or its objectives what they understand is marketing and trying to attract eyeballs is is there any truth to that well the one thing that i really struggle understanding in the industry is why cus customer centricity isn't a bigger part of marketing, why the customer isn't front and center, because the truth is that's what marketing is supposed to represent inside of an organization, right? It's supposed to be the voice of the organization to the market and the voice of the customer internally. The job of a marketer is to understand the customer and to uh, cater the message and the product when possible to deliver to customers' expectations. And I think that along the way, we got caught up in maybe best practices, maybe marketing gimmicks, maybe God knows what. And I see so many marketers out there that have complete and total disregard of the customer. They may think that they are considering the customer, but they're basing it perhaps on knee-jerk reactions or quote-unquote intuition. And and when we do that, there's so much of our own personal biases that influence our perception of what we think customers want and what we think will resonate with them. There are times in which it can be accurate and true, but we can't possibly empathize on a accurate enough basis with all of our customers to do that, unless we decide that as marketers, we're only going to target people who are exactly like us. It's... And it's interesting because in my previous role, 
I was the chief marketing officer selling to other chief marketing officers. So it was very convenient because <laughs> I was my target audience, right? But now stepping into my current role, I had to really start practicing what I was preaching because it changed entirely. My my job is now to market and sell to government. And I am the farthest thing from a, a government or public servant that I, I can even imagine. So it's it really is taking some time to pause and have some self-reflection and remember all of the things that I've been telling other people to do all this time okay. and, and doing them myself, right? Which is taking the customer and putting them in the center of everything that you're doing and finding non-biased ways to listen, to observe, and to tailor your message and your visuals and your efforts and your campaigns to what that customer needs and not what you think they need. I love that. Uh, first of all, you sharing insights on this show is a public service in my opinion. So just going to say you're getting your, your public service in as far as I can say. Uh, I'd like to dig in a little bit and talk about tools or methods that we can use to eliminate our own bias when we're trying to get that message out there when we're involved in a marketing effort. What have you found that is effective for you? Well, I mean, there are so many methodologies out there. Um, I come from the consumer insights field. So we can start with that. We can start with doing some research. You know, research can't always be done at scale, especially if you're not working at an enterprise or a B2C company that sells to direct to consumers and some, I don't know, cool hip retail brand where you get to extract those really large samples of the population for research. But it can also be done at a really intimate level if you're a small organization or if you're in B2B and you have a couple hundred customers, perhaps. Uh, you, can, you can just break it all the way down and go straight into one-on-one -on -one interviews and conversations with customers, which is a, an extremely practical and, and, and perhaps the most raw version of that that you can get. But if you're a mid-sized company, there are a whole other set of tools that come into play. I mean, I surveys are one option. They are pretty efficient um, if they're done right. And I mean, it'll take an entire podcast episode to discuss what it means to do surveys right and <laughs> how often they are done so very incorrectly. But the most important thing is bringing the voice of your customer into the room. The way that you do that is less important to me because I'd rather you do a moderate version of that or perhaps a less than ideal version of that than not doing it at all. Mm. So I would say whichever tool you use to bring the voice of customer into the room in the best way for your organization, that's what matters. Why? Because if you work at an organization that has a huge budget that allows you to invest thousands or even hundreds of thousands of dollars on research initiatives, that's fantastic. By all means, get the best stuff out there and accept nothing less, right? But that's not the reality of most 
marketers right. out there. That's not the reality of most people who are sitting at their desk trying to come up with creative ways and campaigns to speak to their customer in a way that resonates in the middle of so much noise that we have going on when it comes to marketing. I mean, the average American gets targeted by how many ads a day? It's insane. I'm saying how many because I don't actually know. So I'm just creating a, a, a lot. statement there. A the lot. Is so a much. Lot. Um, <laughs> so how do you really break through the noise, especially in this day and age where, I mean, see, I mean, how, how long have you been in the market working, Rob? Just a random question. Well, in this market or in the industry? The market in general. Like since you stepped into the market for the first time, how long have you been around? I mean, I think we all step into the market <laughs> when we're kids, whether or not we're working in the market. Working, is a no answer, child but, labor here. That's not we're working not <laughs> in the market, right? I mean, I think I started working needing to market to get mm -hmm. customers in in really my very first job that was outside mm -hmm. of of service so right out mm -hmm. of college right i got right. into the mortgage business i was a broker and mm -hmm. you had to find your own business and so how do yes. you do that you do it through marketing and so right. literally i don't want to tip everybody off as to how old i am that could be good or bad but it's been 20 plus yep. years. Same. And that's exactly what I was looking for. So 20 years ago, or we can half that, 10 years ago, when you were building marketing efforts, the most cost-effective way of doing that was through digital ads, whether mm -hmm. it was Google ads and, and Facebook starting with their ads. Instagram wasn't even monetized at that point, maybe. It was cheap. And it was what we could do. Yeah. And in fact, we did that so well that digital advertising has become the most popular means of advertising at the moment, which also means it's ridiculously expensive now, <laughs> especially if you're doing auction type ads, which most platforms have, which where whoever pays the most money gets the best ad placement or gets put in front of customers. So it's so expensive to advertise on digital platforms nowadays that some retailers are finding it more productive and finding higher ROI and going back to brick and mortar and setting up shop on a busy street because the cost of acquiring customers is lower than digital. Like that's mm -hmm. kind of shocking really when you think about it, right? So we are in this absolute dog eat dog um, digital ad market, which actually means that most of us can no longer afford it. So what do you do? What yeah, do you do? And the, the one way that you know how to market is all of a sudden no longer an option. You have to get creative. But Yeah, it's funny. If you try to advertise on Google or LinkedIn or Facebook, you can put together a great campaign, but at the end of the day, when you want it to be successful and you ask those, those platforms, how can we reach more people? How can we be more successful? They just say, hey, spend more, baby, spend more. In a shocking turn of events, they will tell you something like, oh, unless you're prepared to spend at least $5,000 per campaign, then you shouldn't even start. 
Mm-hmm. Like that's a real yeah. um, suggestion that I got from LinkedIn when I was advertising on their platform. Don't don't even get started unless your starting budget is five thousand um, dollars. And that seems like peanuts to a lot of marketers out there. But I do marketing for startups. And guess what? Startups are not what they once were (laughs) in the sense that the last couple of years have proven that careless spending of marketing budgets is extremely unsuccessful and it increases the price of the business significantly, um, shortening runway and making you lose credibility with your investors. So the days of experimentation with large marketing budgets, those are gone. And honestly, good riddance, good riddance, because (laughs) that was the worst thing ever. It was the worst marketing practice ever. You'd see people literally throwing money into, into ads and online campaigns, and you'd get these dismal results back and they're like, well, I guess we should just throw more money at them. Right. (laughs) And there is no sustainability there. There's no organic growth. You're not waiting for the stickiness of the market to actually um, show you whether the wording is right, whether the placement is right. Again, a, a big shot marketer will tell you just A-B test it. A-B testing isn't an accurate methodology for testing when you have less than a thousand customers. And there are so many organizations out there. I'm going to say that a large portion of companies in America don't have the necessary web traffic for proper A-B testing. We are not hitting the minimum threshold for accurate A-B testing, especially for our little campaigns. If you're a startup or if you're a small business or even a, a mid-sized privately held business, it's it's not even... I would say that it's a waste of time or money and money to try to A-B test everything that you're putting out. So, I mean, there, there's one more marketing best practice that we have to scratch from that list of what customer-centric marketing means, you know? So I'm, as as I've been spending more and more time in this market and digging into the root causes of why marketers are getting a bad rap or why people don't trust the initiatives of marketers. It seems more and more clear that just walking into an organization and trying to follow a checklist of something that you read on an ebook for growth hacking or, uh, you know, oh, I did HubSpot University. So I know how to, you know, it's what it truly, and not to poo poo these initiatives because they're great, but marketing is so organic. And it has to change along with the market, right? That's mm. essential to any marketer. And the market changes so fast, so fast. And if if you don't keep up, if you're not constantly on top of it, like constantly on top of it, then you get left behind in a heartbeat. You know, like the stuff that was working a year ago is absolutely useless nowadays. I mean, the the pandemic itself was just like a huge wiper of slates let's say <laughs> were all a behavior that was used to form any sort of predictive analytics that was wiped clean and we started from scratch so consumer behavior has changed user behavior has changed 
we have to change as marketers. We have to keep up. And the only way to do that is to constantly be in tune with everything that's going on. And and when I say that, I'm I'm not limiting that to, you know, be on social networks and and read the ebooks and go to the conferences. I also mean continual listening to your customers because I am a B2B marketer. And I think you are too, right? Indeed. You're 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 it's 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 a lot less sexy to some degree. You know, we can't all be on TikTok, even though maybe <laughs> we would like to. Um, but understanding how our customers' needs have changed and how they are interacting with the market nowadays. That's what I think our prime responsibility is as marketers. So I think that I may have answered your question a really long time ago or not at all, but wrapping it all up <laughs> with a pretty bow is regardless of the tools that you're using, the most important thing is to have that connection or have that channel with your customers so you can change along with them mm. as they're changing. Well, now I know what I've been doing wrong because I know everything <laughs> I know from a 2019 ebook, and I've just been doing the same thing this whole time. It was it was a free download, and it was. And I think you know, it was titled wasn't "Everything for lead Generation at All." Yeah, everything you need to know about B two B marketing. And I just was like, "Oh, well, that's it. I'm good." I I didn't realize there was more to this, so I'm learning something today. I'm excited about that. So, oh, great. <laughs> you talked about kind of what you're doing differently today and and you're marketing to government entities, right? It's not even B2B. It's I, I don't do they call that B2G? What do, what do they call that? I don't know. I I just call it it's a niche market. That's I'm going to call it B to the G. <laughs> I think that has a nice ring to it. You're in the I agree. B to the G Let me start space. using that now. I may steal that. You should. Steal, steal away. Is that entirely different than B to B? You just mentioned, right, B to C. Like, we can't all be on TikTok, right? B to mm -hmm. C is different than B to B. So... Is there a difference that you're finding in that business to government space as well? Well, here's the thing. If, if I were marketing to all the government, it would be one thing. I'm not. I'm marketing to housing, affordable housing directors within participating jurisdictions that received FUD, hunt, uh, FUD, HUD funding. And <laughs> FUD hunting, so it, HUD funding, it, it's all the it, same. It's like a little tiny speck. And there are some very unique characteristics of this market that you don't see in the rest of government. Some things are very similar. There is a certain profile to people in government, but there's a whole other set of I'm going to call them psychographics that define or at least can generally define people who are working with affordable housing. And that's who I am targeting right now. And 
while it's not entirely different from B2B in the sense that you really have to dig down to identify who your personas are and the message that you're crafting to them, the difference, I would say, initially is that government is rather ignored by the market. I think we all have this um, idea that because it's government, it doesn't deserve the same quality or attention that the rest of the market does. Because again, since it's government, it's all going to end up being an RFP and it's going to be, the decision is going to be made based on price anyway. So why would we even invest resources into creating a better product or a more efficient product or a product that people are happy to work with or on, you know, we end up thinking, oh, government is slow and inefficient. So let's build something that's slow and inefficient. They won't care. <laughs> right. And the reason I'm saying this is because that's what I've been encountering in the market. The, the solutions or competing solutions seem to believe that it's okay to build subpar products for government. And as a crafty marketer, I fully intend to use that to my advantage because that's not what we're doing, right? We're, we're building a product that's cool. We're building a product that's not subpar to any SaaS platforms out there. You see, so my, my main rationale behind it is those people, those public servants that are on the platform that we provide, they have good UX in every other aspect of their lives. They're on the best apps. They have access to the exact same websites that the rest of us do. Right. Um, they, they receive the same stimulus from the rest of the market that influences their perception of worth and value. So why would they choose a platform that doesn't really respect them as individuals and as workers by providing them with a crap user interface and with clunky reporting that doesn't work you know so it's it's interesting to me because it provides opportunity for entrepreneurs and business people who think past those um easy entry gates let's mm -hmm. say so anybody who has a an opinion that public servants deserve as good a quality as everyone else, or, or even regards them with, or upholds a standard of quality that you would do for the rest of the market, that alone is a huge differentiator. Because in that market, that type of quality is scarce. Yeah. You go on to, 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 to government websites they look like websites from 15 years ago. The platforms look like they're from 25, 30 years ago. Um, but we can build better. We can mm. deliver experiences that are better. You know, so the the difference between uh, targeting government in this case and in other businesses is that they have been ignored. Their needs have been ignored. They're they're who they are as people, the people behind the desk have been ignored, not only by businesses, but by marketers. 
and by marketers that aren't interested in understanding the person behind the desk. And I am. I'm interested in finding out who they are and, and what they want and what they need and what motivates them and what drives their decisions, you yeah. know? So it's been a fantastic experience to simply pull back a layer and, and discover who's on the other side. And it's surprisingly simple and easy to reach people. And I'll tell you why, Rob, and here's this a trade secret that I am revealing See, on a podcast. Public service, it's happening right now. Government is absolutely not um, over-marketed to. So sure. the saturation that other industries have with things like cold calling, cold e uh, emails or LinkedIn requests, basic email marketing, all of those things are still a novelty. I have never seen this rate of um, like uh, email open rate in my life as a marketer. <laughs> we're, we're speaking somewhere along the margins of 40% open rate, 26% click-through rate on emails. Like I, I, I haven't seen this in years. Do you know what I mean? The other yeah. day we sent we sent out an email inviting people to a webinar and you know I'm used to kind of you know B2B space whatever. We had 400 people sign up for the webinar within 2 days. We had wow. 320 <laughs> people show up for the webinar and participate. And and I was like this is beautiful. This is any marketer's dream because yeah. all of these really really low hanging fruit there it's it's there they are ripe to be mm. plucked yeah. and so what ends up happening is that the the initiatives and the efforts that you put in they actually come back and that's really gratifying and in martech nobody cares about your thought leadership blog nobody cares about your social media <laughs> posts nobody cares about your webinars and in government people care they're genuinely interested if you have the right message. So, yeah. you know, if you take the time to just understand people, you can create an extremely efficient set of, of the same messaging that absolutely hits home and it's beautiful. Yeah, I love that. So there, there's a few things there. I, you talked about how, People view government as slow and inefficient. Mm -hmm. And I think in the US, that's by design, right? I mean, we've we've made government slow and inefficient with different levels of bureaucracy and committees and all of these things. But the tools that people use to actually accomplish the job, once everybody says, yes, let's do this, let's go here's the money, they want to do it as well as anybody wants to do their yes. job, whether they're in the private sector or the public sector. It's the trying to get the okay, which has to happen at 14 different levels. That's the slow and inefficient part. And it is, it's, but again, it's by design, right? Mm -hmm. we're, we're talking about spending taxpayer money. And so by design, that decision to to spend uh, is 
slow because you want a bunch of people to weigh in on it. So I get that. But to your point, like they still want to do a great job. They're just like the rest of us. They're just trying to do things for the people in their community, whatever community that is, right? Yes. And, And they just want to help. And they want to do that best and most efficient way possible. And they want to use tools that actually work and look nice and are easy to use and deliver insights that they go, yeah, I can actually pull that up in 15 seconds instead of, well, I need to send a request for a report that'll be back uh, sometime next week. Yeah. Absolutely. I was speaking at an event the other day and I I had someone approach me when I came down from the stage where I had mentioned the exact same thing about treating public servants with the respect they deserve. And he said, I worked in the government, I worked in government for 40 years. And it pains me every time I, I see or hear someone so blatantly ignoring the person and mm. and the motivation behind that person choosing to work in government. So if you if if we make the wild assumption that they are also people, okay? And, <laughs> and that's um, woo, wild. And and you just stop and think, would you would you want to work at a job that provides you with no gratification, with no accomplishment, with no reward? Absolutely not. Would not only that if when you choose your job, if you're lucky, and if you're a millennial, um, you choose a job that inspires you, and and you choose a job that you feel makes you important. Mm-hmm. And people who choose to work in government, they are very deeply motivated by social impact and community causes, and that's yeah. beautiful. Come on, these these are the best of us. Let's think of that for a second. You get teachers you get people who work in housing i mean okay it, they do get frustrated with their job and and you know with with the red tape and all of that stuff but deep down they want to help mm-hmm. i mean people don't choose to work in government because i mean it's so amazingly exciting or <laughs> i get to brag to my friends over cocktails that i work in exciting government no. Right. So when you when you drill down into what motivated them to pick that role to begin with, it's most likely that they want to make a difference. Mm-hmm. And by forcing these people, I, I know that this is a bit of a stretch, but bear with me for a second, because I'm talking about software. So, I mean, OK, I, I don't also want to be a ridiculous person, but when you force a person to sit in front of crappy software for eight hours of their day, 40 hours a week, and just live that hellhole of inefficiency, what does that do to their spirit? Yeah, You know, when you're forcing people to create workarounds so that they can um, maintain compliance and, and not get sued or prosecuted for fraud because they made a mistake in a, in a bad system and you take away from the time that they could be spending helping someone get off the streets or helping a single mom find a home or or helping um 
low income families get better at their jobs so that they can move out of public housing and into their own homes. Like you, we're taking away from that by forcing them to spend hours working on paperwork in bad software or worse, even in manual processes, you know? So maybe I'm being a little bit romantic. I don't know. But I do think that building software that helps people do a better job at getting families to have roofs over their heads, I, I actually think that that's beautiful. I do too. And, and there are a couple of things that I think about. Number one, I think most of us, when we think of government, we think of politics. Mm-hmm. And and the, the politics are way up here, mm-hmm. right? But the, the people who actually do the work are not, they're not involved in politics. They're yeah. there to actually carry out the work that we've decided all together that this is what we want, right? Mm-hmm. And there are all kinds of different functions. And so I think sometimes we forget that government is not politics. Politics right. are part of government, but government is not politics. And, and in this country, politics have become so polarized that I think people have this natural distaste for government when yeah. government actually does a lot of really important good work. Yeah. The other thing is if you are frustrated with how long it takes to do something with government, it could be because they're dealing with crappy software and it takes them a long time or they get frustrated, right? If you go in and they kind of have a bad attitude, like they may be frustrated with the tools that they've been given to do the job. And so when, you know, the private sector can say, hey, we've got this awesome stuff that's just for you, or it's awesome stuff that can help you do your job even better. That has a knock-on effect for all of us, quite honestly. Like those of you that complain about going to the DMV, like ask to see the software that they're working on. You might go, oh, well, if I had to work on that all day, I'd be a little spicy too. Exactly. Exactly. And so, I mean, if you just consider employee experience here as a good motivator to have better software, and here's where it gets critical. So the U.S. um, public service is like any other job. There's there are some cool benefits. Yes. But other than that, there isn't really anything that's keeping you in public service other than your motivation of perhaps believing that you're doing good work to help the community. Mm -hmm. This is not the case for a lot of other countries in the world. So I'm, I'm originally from Brazil and in Brazil, uh, public servants have lifetime positions that they cannot be removed from unless it goes through like all the way to the Supreme court to get somebody removed from a public position. Um, it's done by public contest. So, and I know that a lot of places in Asia are like this as well. And um, I think some others in South America, uh, where you take a test and it's, it's a written test that assesses your intelligence and your abilities, sometimes having nothing to do with the job that you're actually applying for. But anyway, it's by public contest. And once you 
um, are in, you're in for the rest of your life. So people stay because of the pension of the guaranteed job, no matter how good or how bad you are at that job, you still have a guaranteed job, right? So this is a motivator to continue working regardless of the software, regardless of the system, regardless of the red tape, regardless of the poor employee culture. That is not the case in the U.S. Right. The case in the U.S., people can leave. And that's what's happening. People are leaving. Like, you think the great resignation was only for restaurants and resorts and stuff like that? No, it hit government really hard mm -hmm. because people don't want to feel like their souls are being sucked out of their body and into a piece of crappy software, you know? I swear, I mean, like, you know. I know. I mean, we have no tolerance for bad software as users, none. We're on an app, This the first glitch of that app, or if we don't find a button where we think that button should be, Uninstall. we're gone. <laughs> gone, you know? So all of a sudden, having to be forced to use a system that's absolutely not intuitive, not user-friendly, as complex as it can possibly be, and you have to be on that all day long, and, and all of your goals and your objectives and your quotas and everything rely on getting that system to work. I mean, that would be enough to make me quit my job, you know? So a, a huge problem that's happening is that it's the, the money that's being saved in, in not increasing the technology or the quality of the software is now being absolutely spent with employee turno uh, um, turnover because not only do people quit it's hard to recruit new people. Yeah, absolutely. Because people don't want to do the job, you know? I think you've come up with a great Netflix movie opportunity, which Ooh. is an app that sucks souls out of people. I don't know exactly <laughs> how this it's plays out. It's a horror out. film. <laughs> we can get Jordan Peele to direct it. <laughs> yes. I would actually be the perfect person. I think there's something there. So... I am going to let you run with that because mm -hmm. you're the one who said it. I just <laughs> want you to know that I think it could be trending on Netflix if it were a movie. Yeah, I mean, I'm a great marketer. So if I market that movie, I mean. <laughs> let me ask you something. So you mentioned that you're from Brazil and mm -hmm. I know that you uh, started working for a language teaching company mm -hmm. in brazil which you eventually then took over like yeah you, you bought it out mm -hmm. and and then really turned the jets on is that where you cut your your teeth in marketing was it before that when did you fall in love with marketing you're absolutely right it was when i took over because uh so i started off as a language teacher, right, being the American kid in a non-English speaking country, that was the, the quickest and easiest way to make money, right, offering language classes. And that I had that entrepreneurial spirit in me. So we founded the company when I was 21 and I had a co-founder that I eventually bought out and took over. And the interesting thing is that the product was always good. We always had the best teachers. We always had the best material. We always had the best methodology, the best platform um, to serve our teachers and our students to book classes, et cetera. 
But the one thing that we didn't understand was that there was a gap in how much students wanted to pay versus how likely they were to actually complete all of those classes. Think of it this way. You, when you sign up for a gym, you, you, you're sure that you're going to go at least three <laughs> times a week. And, you know, you go maybe twice a month, perhaps, unless you're me, who is a gym maniac. But um, that happens more often than not, right? That's a human trait. We, we choose to, to initiate some sort of project for, for self-improvement or uh, professional qualification. And when we make that decision, we want to go hard, but life happens and things get in the way. So what happened more often than not is that students would cancel and teachers wouldn't make money. And what ended up happening is that teachers were constantly on this limbo of the gig economy of never knowing how much money would go into their bank account in the end of the month. And, and that provided a, a, a huge insecurity. So I think that the, the, the real silver bullet was understanding that students were willing to pay less, but have a fixed cost. And mm -hmm. teachers were willing to make less if we could guarantee that they would make that money at the end of the month. So mm -hmm. that was a, 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 a double understanding of both stakeholders, which were the students and the teachers. So it was understanding what the pains of the teachers was and understanding what the pain of the student was. The student was paying too much and then canceling classes. The teacher was charging a lot for classes, but ultimately not making that money at the end of the month because students canceled. So by finding out that the one thing that would solve both of these problems is by creating a fixed cost, all of a sudden it worked. And, and that's what was the true differentiator at the time um, because we were the only language school that was offering that option and it was a, a, a financially a, a very viable product let's say yeah. so I think that that was my first dipping of toes into understanding um, the motivators um, behind stakeholder needs and how addressing those needs can make you profitable I love that you know it says a lot to the experience too because part of the experience with any product or service is, right? I mean, unless it's free, which nothing's really free, but right, how we pay and what we determine we're getting, are we getting a good deal, right? Is this a mm -hmm. value for the money or are we paying extra because it's luxury or whatever? But that, that piece of it is a part of the experience and I love that you identified how you could tailor that to, to make yourself a market differentiator and just how you change the payment process, yeah. right? The, the methodology yeah. there. But I mean, you can tell me like, Mary, come on, you're just talking about the subscription model. I'm like, yeah, but I'm talking about it 15 years ago. Right. You know, like right. we weren't in we the all subscription economy. <laughs> 15 years ago, you know, it was, it was something very different back then. Mm -hmm. And, and, and then here's, but here's one more example of changing with the times, Rob, you see back then my idea was very innovative. So it caused a huge impact right mm -hmm. now that model is completely commoditized. 
And so it's no longer a differentiator at all, right? If you're going to have this really cool idea, you pay one fee, (laughs) one fee, right? So again, if you want to make a difference and you want that to be a key differentiator that you can market properly, then you have to be ahead Mm -hmm. of those trends. Um, If it, I, I think that it is right around the corner, if not already here, where people are going to start dropping off of subscription models and going into the next new innovative form of uh, payment of services. I don't know what that is. I haven't seen it yet, but I definitely have my eyes and ears open because it's coming. There, there are only so many years that that this type of economy um, flourishes in the market before some innovator comes and, and takes its place. Right. So I I challenge any marketers or individuals who are responsible for um, building products or pricing models inside your organization. Don't get comfortable because change is coming. There is something about the current economy that's very, very ripe for disruption. And we're going to see it within the next couple of years, Max. Change is coming. I think that is the. Perfect way Change is to... always coming, though. Like, yeah, it I is. Mean, you can it just is. be the, a perpetual John the Baptist in the wilderness, screaming about changes coming, and it's always <laughs> going to be accurate, just forever, because it's evergreen. It's always coming. Yeah, I love it. Well, Mary, <laughs> this was an amazing conversation. I really enjoyed getting to talk with you and learn from you, and I know. Uh, you may have some competition in the government space after my tens of listeners listen to this and they're all like, <laughs> market to the government. <laughs> so thank you. Thank you for joining. Thank you, Next thank you. <laughs> That's awesome. Thanks for having me. I appreciate the opportunity to share my thoughts on, on marketing. I, I, I don't think that there's anything really revolutionary about what I'm doing. And I need to make that very clear. I just made a decision of what I believe in as a professional and I'm sticking with it until the market changes and I have to change what I believe in. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's a good plan. Next in queue is brought to you by happy to, and is produced by me, Rob Dwyer. If you enjoy this podcast, Please, by all means, subscribe and or rate this podcast in iTunes or your favorite podcast app. But more importantly, please tell just one person about this podcast. Word of mouth is the best way for people to discover new content. As always, thanks for listening.